the unvisited house or the centurion's house is what we've um, called this this morning. You recall that we've been taking this um, journey down Luke Street and you might wonder why this passage was chosen because in this passage Jesus doesn't actually get to anybody's house. Um, Well, the simple truth is that in order to fit the series uh, neatly up to Easter Sunday, we needed to find an extra one. And this one fitted uh, because there is a house involved, although it is a house that Jesus never got to, which I think is quite quite good in some ways. Uh, And so this is uh, why... This is our subject for this morning. That doesn't matter at all, really, does it? Because whatever part of the scripture we choose, there's something there for us. And there certainly is something in this um, passage we have this morning. It takes place at uh, Capernaum, where Jesus lived at the time. You might think of this as his sort of headquarters In uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, we're told, Leaving Nazareth, Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now we know that, don't we, from um, when we looked at chapter 4. Remember when he was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth? That's where he went. He moved on to Capernaum where he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law and many others. But that reading, those verses I just read to you go on and they say this, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Is that familiar? Go back to Christmas. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. We're apt to quote that, aren't we? You see, this reminds us that everything we find in the New Testament, everything we find in the life of the Lord, was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And uh, so uh, Matthew, because of the standpoint from which he writes, he latches on to this prophecy and says, well, of course Jesus went to Capernaum. Of course he was there. Because that's what Isaiah said he would do. And uh, remember also that going back again to chapter 4, what uh, Jesus says uh, at the end when the people try to detain him, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So begins uh, his ministry in this area of uh, Galilee. And the story we're looking at this morning uh, takes place uh, in the second year of his ministry. Some people refer to that as the year of popularity. First year, that was his year of inauguration, as it were, you know, where Jesus is introduced to us. Then we have this year where so much happens. It's tremendous, isn't it? It's a sort of revival centered around the person of Jesus 
And then the third year, people start to turn away. He hasn't quite done what they thought he would do, you know, uh, lead them in a conquest of the Romans who were their uh, oppressors. And the opposition increases. And so that's often referred to as the year of opposition. But here, his ministry begins in the area of um, uh, Galilee. And as I was um, studying this, I was taken back to when I was really quite young. And that song we used to sing. Did you used to sing it? By blue Galilee, Jesus walked of old. By blue Galilee, wondrous things he told. Saviour still my teacher be, showing wondrous things to me, as of old by Galilee, blue Galilee. No? Dear, I wish I had a voice, I'd sing it to you, but I really don't. Um, I'll get somebody to sing it to you one day. It's a little chorus we used to sing uh, with the children. And really, that's a prayer for us this morning, is it? As we approach this study, Saviour still my teacher be, not the preacher, the Lord himself, to teach us this morning, showing wondrous things to me, as of old by Galilee, blue Galilee. So if you've an imagination, uh, take yourself then to this time and this place. If we go back into the previous chapter, uh, chapter 6, we see that Jesus has been out and about And uh, there's one of those encounters with the Pharisees over the Sabbath day. And uh, a man with a withered hand is healed. Then there's that little bit where the um, 12 apostles are named or ordained. And then we come to the Sermon on the Mount. Recorded in much more detail in Matthew, of course. But it's recorded also in Luke. All those uh, wonderful words, all those things that so go against the grain, love your enemies, and so on. And uh, after that, he's returning to HQ. He's had a really busy time. Uh, No doubt in need of rest and recuperation. But it doesn't happen, does it? He's confronted immediately with a situation. Forgive me this morning as I ramble about a bit, uh, but as we look at this this morning, I want us to look at the three people involved, the slave or the servant, the elders of the Jews, and the centurion. Um, And uh, because of the nature of it, uh, it kind of rambles a bit. But really, all of these people have something to say to us. This uh, servant... Or slave, because his master is a Roman, I think it's more likely that he would have been a slave rather than some form of uh, employee. And in some translations, the word slave is used. Slavery, of course, was commonplace in Roman times and in Roman society. In fact, Roman society wouldn't have existed without slavery. They, they were really dependent on slaves and on the army. That's, you know, the power of Rome in many ways. And the experience of a slave could vary. Some would be treated well and even perhaps as members of the family, but others would be mere chattels. But nevertheless, they were slaves. They were not free. 
We have to be careful not to speculate. Uh, the narrative doesn't tell us everything, but we know that the, uh, this uh, slave uh, was cared for by his master. He meant a great deal to him. And as a consequence, uh, through his master's actions, his life was saved. In, in um, the old AV, it does say he was dear to him. Here it says he valued him highly. The servant, of course, is he's passive in all this. Um, but, as a consequence, he is indebted. He's indebted, first of all, to these elders of the Jews. These men who pleaded earnestly with Jesus on behalf of the centurion. We might describe uh, their words as intercessory prayer. And this story illustrates the importance of that. They intervened on the centurion's behalf with the Lord. Isn't that what we do when we pray for people? We might question their motives uh, because this this, um, centurion man had uh, benefited them greatly constructing a synagogue, but he'd also shown uh, uh, an interest and a care for the Jewish people, uh, which was somewhat uncharacteristic of a Roman. We might say that um, their pleading for him, therefore, was um, motivated because they wanted to keep this centurion on their side, as it were, keep him sweet, as it were. That says maybe, but for us, of course, the contrast is in our prayers. uh, They should be sparked by love of others, uh, regardless of their good works or lack of them. Uh, we are taught that the Lord loves everyone and our response as those who love the Lord should be the same. So the Holy Spirit should be at work in us to prompt us to pray for all who are in need. James reminds us, you remember this because we did some studies in James, that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So when I read this little uh, bit here about these elders of the Jews pleading on behalf of the centurion, that's what I saw. I saw prayer. And uh, prayer in a particular way. These words aren't by chance. Pleaded earnestly. Two things there. To plead and to be earnest in your pleading. Elsewhere, you know, when the Lord talks in parables, he talks about not giving up in prayer. And elsewhere in the, the epistles, of course, you know, we're exhorted to pray for everyone. We're exhorted to pray for those in authority. We're exhorted to pray for one another. We're exhorted to pray with thanksgiving. And... Uh, that comes out here. These uh, uh, Jewish um, leaders were certainly thankful to have a synagogue built. They were appreciative 
of all the benefits they've gained and so they could say to the Lord, this man deserves this. And they pleaded earnestly for him. It occurs to me too that perhaps they um, did that because they still hadn't grasped that the Lord had come for the Gentiles also. So they felt he was in need of special pleading. Do you remember, again, you know, we, we go back into chapter 4 and previous chapters where um, the, the Jews and the Pharisees particularly hadn't grasped this, that the Lord had come for the Gentiles too. You know, he had come uh, for everyone. They were still locked into this Um, that the one true God was the God of the Jews and of no one else. And of course the Lord had come to show them something different uh, to that. And again, you can pick that up in uh, Isaiah's prophecies. So what is at the heart of this story, we'll move on from prayer, is this man, this centurion, this strange encounter with Jesus. It's not a face-to-face encounter. It's a sort of um, proxy encounter, isn't it? He uses other people as, as go-betweens. Uh, really quite uh, strange. Well, what was a century? What's the century? With the children, um, I, tried to, I just picked on a few local uh, you know, people who were of some import in, in our um, community. Because I think that's how you would describe this centurion, this man. In his uh, community, in Capernaum, he was of some import. What would he have been? Well, he would have been a professional soldier in the Roman army. Most centurions commanded groups of centuries of around 80 men. Senior centurions uh, would command bigger groups, cohorts, um, uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, it gets a bit complicated. I did look it up. Cohort is six centuries of 80 men commanded each by a centurion and then sometimes there'll be a senior centurion who command that cohort so that 480 men is it? I think. I haven't got my mass head on this morning. Forgive me. I have my preacher's head on this morning, or more, uh, hopefully, my preacher's heart this morning. So, anyway, there we are. A century could command a lot of men. Very possibly, he was the sort of garrison commander based in Capernaum. Perhaps we might think of him as the sheriff or the chief of police. And um, he would have a job to do, as we read on uh, later on. When I was looking at this, I was reminded of two other centurions mentioned in Luke's writings. I wonder if that's significant. When we get to Luke chapter 23, we read of the centurion at the cross. Do you remember what he said? The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely, this was a righteous man. And in Acts 10, 
we have the story of Cornelius, who was a centurion. Remember, Luke wrote Acts as well. You remember um, Cornelius, he was based in Caesarea, and um, it says in uh, verse 1 at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Regularly, Can you see a parallel here between our centurion? Rather similar characters, aren't they? It's amazing, that. We haven't time to read the whole of... Uh, Acts 10, because that's not our subject this morning. But if you read it, you will uh, discover that um, in a vision, he's told to send for Peter. Peter himself has a vision involving the unclean animals being let down from heaven, which, of course, he refuses uh, to eat, and he has to learn the lesson uh, uh, from God. And then the messengers arrive from Cornelius, and Peter goes with them to preach the gospel to Cornelius and his household. They're Gentiles. They're not Jews. That's the point of the story. And uh, so I just thought it was interesting to see that uh, in Luke's writings, three centurions appear. Returning to our centurion, it's evident that living amongst God people had a profound effect on him. Ordinarily, a Roman soldier would despise the people they had conquered. Um, They were just that. They were a conquered people. They were not Roman, therefore they were uh, inferior. Um, The the fascists of recent history are not original. You know, in ancient times, these attitudes were very much held and uh, the, our, the subject of our story this morning, this centurion, he's so much out of the mold, as it were. He's so much, um, in a way, sticking his, his, his neck out. He'd come to love uh, these uh, Jewish people. And he showed that in his generosity by building a synagogue for them. It's clear also that he was uh, aware of Jesus and what Jesus had done. We have to be careful um, when we study God's word not to speculate. Um, You know, we have to look at what's there and take the lessons from it. But I'm sure that as we read this, we can see that he must have come to know of Jesus uh, by some means or another. Was he at the Sermon on the Mount? If you'd have seen some movies that are made of the life of Christ and you see the crowd scenes, they always put a soldier there, don't they? Somewhere sort of keeping guard, you know, keeping order or something. So was he there? Had he perhaps witnessed some of Jesus' miracles? After all, his HQ was Jesus' HQ. 
Capernaum. Had he witnessed those encounters with the Pharisees? Had he seen how Jesus reached out to the outcasts? What's the answer? Well, some or all of the above. We don't know, but he clearly had come to know about Jesus. And he had a faith in Jesus. That's why at the end of verse 7 he could say, Say the word and my servant will be healed. There's certainty there. There's There's no doubt. He believed that Jesus had the power to heal his servant. He recognizes Jesus' authority over the natural world. And then he, he speaks to Jesus in what we perhaps might find a puzzling way. Can you sort of picture him saying to uh, the people he sent, now, now tell him this, then tell him this. They got the message right, didn't they? You see, he says to to the Lord, for I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. What he is saying is he understands what it is to have power. To be obeyed. And he recognizes this in the Lord. But obviously in a much more uh, substantial and indeed a supernatural way. So that's why he's confident that his servant will be healed. Because he's saying in a much more... Yeah, supernatural is the only word I think I can use. In a much more supernatural way, you're like I am. You say it and it happens. You command something and it's done. But what really strikes me in this story is the way in which the centurion's faith manifests itself. And we read this in verse 7. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. What does he say? I do not deserve. I do not even consider myself worthy. Why would he say that? Possibly because he was a Gentile and not a Jew and, and uh, realized that, uh, the particular relationship that the Jewish people had with the one true God. But I'm not sure uh, about that. And he certainly um, had had contact with the Jews in his uh, community as we've already been told. I believe that he saw in Jesus a truly holy man. He saw a man with power beyond human experience. And that's why I I said earlier, you know, about speculating. Had he seen these miracles? Had he been here? Had he heard 
this. As a consequence, he realized that he wasn't worthy to be in the presence of such a man. That regardless of his own exalted position as a Roman in authority amongst a conquered people, he was not worthy. The Lord is amazed at his faith and says, I have not seen such faith in all Israel. Or I have not seen such great faith even in Israel. Because that's where he would expect to see it, isn't it? Amongst God's people, the people who had uh, the tradition, the Old Testament, we understand it, the people who should have been waiting expectantly for a Messiah. The people who were so out of step with Anna and Simeon, whom you heard about a few Sundays ago, who were expecting, who were waiting. But this man, who had no background, who had no prior knowledge, as it were, sees Jesus for who he is. And uh, so the Lord says, I have not seen such great faith even in Israel. Of course, the servant is healed, but it just stands out to me, this man's humility in all of this. His faith is manifest in his humility. Faith, what is faith? Well, it's about accepting what God has done for us through his son, Jesus. You have to do that, don't you? As Christians, we have expressed our acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice for us. We've taken it for ourselves. Like the picture in uh, Pilgrim's Progress of Pilgrim, who after his struggles in the slough of Despond finds himself at the foot of the cross, and that's the place where he loses his burdens. There isn't anywhere else. In our experience, we must have uh, come to that and taken Jesus to be our saviour. It's good to rejoice at our salvation and eternal hope after we have realised our own sorry state, grasped our unworthiness, and turned to him in repentance but it's good also to have an understanding of well we can never fully understand it can we we don't have the means or the capacity to measure it what does Paul write about there's no height no depth no length no breadth that can describe or contain the love of God. It's immeasurable. The gap between us and our holy God is not measurable. We can't picture it. But he has drawn near to us. Bridge that gap through Jesus. And if we grasp that, what does it make us? Do you remember the parable Jesus told of the two men that went to the temple. I love that story. The Pharisee and the 
tax collector. I used to be one, you know. In a, lo- a long time ago, where I was, it's very, um, it's very interesting when you uh, meet people and they say, oh, what do you do? And you say, oh, I'm a civil servant. And then they press you a bit more. But I was a, ta- yeah, I was a tax collector. I, I, um, uh, I was a civil servant and uh, I served and I helped people fulfill their responsibilities. But you remember this, uh, this, um, this story, don't you? you know, and uh, they're in the temple and uh, the Pharisee, certain of his position, of his knowledge, of his religious observance, he comes with a prayer of thanksgiving. That sounds good, doesn't it? What kind of prayer is it? Oh, I thank you, God, that I'm not like him. It's a prayer of judgment. We can't be there. No matter how good we've been this week, no matter how generous, no matter how often in prayer, in God's word, in helping others, in speaking kindly to someone, in serving in the church, no matter how much of that we might accumulate, we're still tax collectors. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And he couldn't raise his head. I love, I love that because it's pictures. You see, I can see that now. I can see the Pharisee standing there where all the people in the temple could see him. Because that's what they were apt to do. The Lord says that, doesn't he, in the Gospels? How they prayed in public for people to see. And the tax collector finding a little corner where he could deal with God alone and humbly and broken. And that's how we need to be, isn't it? Sinners saved by grace. What about that old hymn then? Perhaps you don't know that one either. The chorus says, Saved by grace alone. This is all my plea. Jesus died for all mankind and Jesus died for me. Praise God if you can say that this morning. And praise him more if you can put a tune to it because I can't. (laughs) But it's great to be able to say these things. But it's not a cause for pride, is it? It's not a cause to look in judgment on others. It's just a cause to fall down in gratitude as we realize what God has done for us. And for me, in this story, that's what I see in this centurion man. I see true humility. It's tempting to go into Philippians chapter 2 now, but we're not going to. We're going to uh, conclude there. So what is the, uh, the, the, uh, the sort of um, the challenge and the lesson of this one? Well, for me, it's a challenge about a prayer life that intercedes for others and a true appreciation of our Saviour Jesus, rejoicing in knowing him, but also grasping that it is God himself who has bought my salvation and praying for a deeper appreciation of him and living humbly as a result.